All right, the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We are getting very close to the end of our sermon series on the book of Psalms, Scale the Mountain, worshiping God from the songs of His people. Some of you maybe has felt like we've been climbing a mountain, but we're almost at the top. We're almost done. Uh, we're gonna, we have a, two, two more weeks in this text, and then uh, uh, Ben Hine, who uh, is a church planner in Indianapolis, who's been here before, is going to preach uh, uh, one week, and then we'll be jumping into a new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, after that. And so uh, we're excited to, to dive into those things. Well, this morning's sermon is in Psalm 137. And 137 is a really tough text. And so I was thinking a lot this week about what to, how to introduce this. And sometimes sermon illustrations or introductions come to me like really quickly where I wrestle through it for the whole week. And, and then sometimes they just present themselves to you. So yesterday, this presented itself to me. Ezra uh, asked for a snack. And sometimes he asks for just all the vegetables and f- uh, fruit that you have. Just all of it. Uh, so he wants a smattering of things. And so he had his little plate of vegetables and fruit that he did not finish all of. Uh, but he had uh, some apples there and uh, he had to go to the bathroom. So he went to the bathroom. He comes back out and he says, this apple tastes like hand sanitizer. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. At least you wash your hands. <laughs> Two good things. Apples and hand sanitizer. Put together, not a good thing. It's a good thing, especially, so what's interesting, right, is using hand sanitizer right before you eat apples is a really good idea. Not rubbing it in enough, bad idea. Getting it on the apple, bad idea, right? Having it taste like a hand sanitizer, bad idea. Sometimes, I think we do the same with our relationship with God and in our worship. We try to sanitize our language, our emotion, our feelings. We hold back some of the honest pain, anger, sadness. And then when we go to worship, we taste sanitizer and not Jesus. And then we think Jesus has no answers to my pain. He's not good. I feel bad about all the things going on, and now I just have a bad taste in my mouth also. But we didn't really give him a chance because we sanitized what we were trying to do. If we've learned anything in our Psalms series, hopefully that we've learned we don't need to sanitize our worship because the psalmist doesn't. They come in raw honesty. Now, honesty is not irreverence. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy beyond comprehension. We cannot seek Him in just any way we choose. But that's not what I mean by raw honesty. I mean raw honesty in lament and in worship. We can be honest in our lament and weep in our worship while we wait for Jesus to make all things new. That's the point of this text. And the point that I want to drive home for us this morning is that we can be honest in our lament and weep in our worship while we wait for Jesus to make all things new. And we're going to look at this in a couple of ways. We're going to look first at what it means to be honest in our lament. Then we're going to skip down to what it means to wait for Jesus to make all things new. 
and end in what it means to weep in our worship. And that's the point of this very difficult psalm that we're going to look at. Before we read it, I want to give thanks to Hunter, who wrote a, a great seminary paper on this, uh, on this psalm. So uh, he was my research assistant for this uh, sermon. It was very, very helpful. Uh, so also, if you have any comments that are negative, you can just direct them right straight to Hunter. Uh, my research assistant will handle that <laughs> for us this morning. So if you have any positive comments, you can, you can share those with me. That's, that's fine. That's fine. All right, so Psalm 137, and we're going to read the first six verses to start. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. We're going to end right there for now. We need to be honest in our laments. Now, the context of this psalm, we don't always have direct context to each psalm, but this one we have a pretty good idea. This is right after Babylon has exiled the Israelites, right? They are sitting by the rivers of Babylon, it says, right? They're, they're sitting uh, probably by uh, a series of canals in Babylon. They're sitting there weeping. Now, the context of their lament is a brutal exile. The Babylonians were known for their brutality. And we get pictures of this in the Scriptures. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, it says this, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hands." And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This brutal exile, this brutal destruction of Jerusalem, of Zion, and if you are paying attention throughout our psalm series, right, we've talked a lot about how the temple and Jerusalem are incredibly important theologically for God dwelling with his people. It's gone. It's been destroyed. This is a crisis moment for the people of God. God has promised that he will dwell with us, that he will give us this land, that he will be our God, we will be his people. And now we're not there. And what makes this even more difficult and shameful and the suffering even more is because it's come 
as judgment. God had promised and warned through His prophets that this would happen if His, his, his people continued to disobey. Right? According to the word of Jeremiah, the land enjoyed its rest because they were taken out of the land because of their disobedience. So they experienced shame, judgment, and brutal suffering. It says that they did not leave anyone exempt from their killing. Young and old, men and women, children. The Babylonians were brutal. The ancient Near East was a very difficult and brutal place. The temple is destroyed, and all they can do is sit by the rivers and weep. And then, to add insult to injury, the Babylonians mock them and say, we know that you sing songs, sing us some songs. And all they can do is hang up their guitars, their lyres, and not sing. All they can do is weep. Just because the suffering here that they've experienced comes as a result of judgment doesn't mean that the suffering cannot be lamented as unjust, right? We, we wrestled through this a lot, this very reality uh, many years ago when we walked through the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is this series of laments about this very thing. Jeremiah lamenting the reality of what God has done. And in some ways, you see throughout this whole thing, God, you have done this. Yes, it was our fault because we sinned. And yet, Lord, you've gone too far. The suffering is unjust. You have gone too far. And so they weep and they lament and they do so with raw honesty. Now, there is judgment for sure. But what Babylon does, well, God will actually judge Babylon for what they do. And their treatment of Israel is unjust. And so they are able to, to lament this suffering in raw honesty. Now, we cannot sanitize our laments because if we sanitize our laments, they cease to be laments. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, says this about lament. He says, A community of faith which negates laments soon concludes that the hard issues of justice are improper questions to pose at the throne. Because the throne seems to be only a place of praise. I believe it thus follows that if justice questions are improper questions at the throne, which is a conclusion drawn through liturgic use, they soon appear to be improper questions in public spaces, in schools, in hospitals, and in the government, and eventually even the courts. Justice questions disappear into civility and docility. We sanitize things. Because we're not honest in our lament. Now the reality is our context is not the same as theirs. They're in a very specific context here. They've gone through very specific and brutal suffering. And that does not match our lived experience. However, that does not mean that our suffering is not worthy of lament. Just because our context isn't the same does not mean that our suffering is not worthy of laments. If God allows for this act, 
which was judgment upon his people, to be lamented. And he allows it so much so that he actually inspires psalms that, he, that end up in the scriptures about it, then certainly our suffering is worthy of lament. Certainly the things that we endure in life are worthy of lament. And our lament must match what their lament has. It's emotional. It's emotional. I don't know if you've ever had moments in which you're, the way in which you're responding to something has been considered too emotional. Well, you're not thinking clearly because you're, you're, you're too emotional. Well, the psalmist allows us to express our emotion clearly. They lament. And we're going to get to even more raw honesty and lament in a moment, but they are going to lament and they are going to bring their full emotion. The psalmist, the psalms throughout the psalms showcase that that is an appropriate place to bring our emotion. It's not appropriate for us to deny that we have emotion. It actually doesn't do us any good either, right? When we deny that we are feeling something that we're actually feeling, it doesn't actually help us not feel it. We need to be honest about it. Lament is also honest. It comes with honesty. Really saying what we're really thinking and not holding it back. It's raw. There are places in Lamentations. There are places in the Psalms where you're like, ah, are we allowed to read that out loud in church? It's raw. They have faced real, brutal suffering. And they are raw. It is directed to God. This is the most important part of laments. The difference often between our complaining about situations in the world and our lamenting is who we're directing it to. Think complaining about our circumstances and complaining about God and His sovereignty over our circumstances to other people ends up usually being complaint and grumbling and murmuring. But directing those exact same words to God is called lament. It's directing our complaints about God and His sovereign care over the world and the circumstances we find ourselves in directly to Him. Not sanitizing it and trying to come to Him with some sort of sanitized petition while we give our real honesty either to our own thoughts or to others around us. My favorite quote from our study of the book of Lamentations comes from uh, commentator Christopher Wright in his uh, commentary on Lamentations. He says, God has broad enough shoulders to cry on and a big enough chest to beat against. We can come in raw honesty, sadness, and anger to our God. And that's the first thing that we can see in this text. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, the text says that beside the rivers they sat and they wept. Okay, I get that there's some lament there, and they, they're saying, hey, let's not forget Jerusalem. We can't forget Jerusalem. And if we do, let us forget our skill. 
let us not be able to play any songs anymore because we've forgotten Jerusalem. But you're talking about some raw honesty that I don't really see in the text. Well, that's because we didn't read the rest of the text yet. I wanted to slow us into this text. But the rest of the text is going to talk about while we wait, we can be honest in our lament while we wait for Jesus to make all things new. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay. Well, now we get to the raw honesty. What do we do with this text? This is uh, unsettling. It should be unsettling. It's an unsettling text about unsettling events. It should not sit with us and say, well, that's a, that's a coffee cup verse. <laughs> Certainly it's not. It's an unsettling text. A couple of things to note about this text as we start to unpack it. This word blessed, blessed shall he be. Some translations, uh, our normal translation, the NLT that we normally use says happy. Blessed is a word that, that brings together all sorts of different ideas. It's hard to translate straight into English, right? And so there is a, uh, a, a sense in which uh, blessed is the, the good life, the shalom, the happy life. And yet it's not a gleeful happiness. When we use the word happy, well, we think more of a gleeful happiness, but not that. It's more so pronouncing a blessing on the one who executes justice on Babylon and Edom. Right? It's pronouncing a blessing upon those who execute justice on Babylon and Edom. And this is a biblical concept. If we look back to Genesis 12... God says this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This, Abraham's descendants, the people of God, Israel, they have been destroyed by Edom and Babylon, and so God is pronouncing a curse upon them, right? If, if the one who executes justice upon Babylon and Edom is blessed, that means Babylon and Edom are experiencing curse. This blessing is for executing judgment, which isn't the same as cursing. How did Babylon and Edom treat Israel? Well, they treated them with great contempt, and they receive judgment. The second thing to note in this text, if we go back, is the principle within the Scriptures, within the law of God of an eye for an eye. Now, the principle of an eye for an eye uh, is, is uh, certainly seen negatively today, but we need to know it in its ancient Near Eastern context uh, and, then, and then see how that works. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the law in, in the book of Exodus, but if we're to understand how this works, in the ancient Near East, there was always escalation to any act of violence, which is true actually really across the board in all human cultures, right? Uh, so you stole my cow, I'll kill yours. You invaded my land, I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. 
That's how it was responded to. And so when the Lord adds in this idea of eye for an eye, it's really a grace in adding in a principle of justice that limits human vengeance by not allowing it. That the justice has to equal the crime. Now, we'll get to what that means for us shortly. We'll get there. But, but right now you need to know that that's the case because... It shows up here in Psalm 137 in verses 8 and 9. These are parallel verses. The second one explaining the first. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What the psalmist is saying is, this is exactly what Edom and Babylon did to Israel. They're Execution of judgment upon Israel was brutal. It included children. They were not exempt from this reality. And so this is brutality at its fullest. Now, that doesn't make this prayer any less unsettling. I, I understand that. That doesn't, that doesn't solve it for me to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Let's pray that prayer right now, right? Like, that's not how this goes. We need to wrestle through that, and I understand that, and we're going to get there, but to wrestle through that, we need to understand it properly first. This is something that Israel experienced. And so in the context of that, we need to see that. Now, the, the, the challenge maybe that you might experience is, wait a second, isn't this judgment through Babylon from God? So like, Israel, you're really mad. But wasn't this something that you brought upon yourself, right? Well, certainly the book of Habakkuk talks a little bit about this. Habakkuk complains, uh, is a series of complaints. Habakkuk complains to God. He says, I look around and the leaders are unjust in Israel. Everything is terrible. There's injustice everywhere. Lord, how long? What, what are you going to do? And God answers him and says... For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and all their faces Forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth, up earth, and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, Habakkuk, in response to this, is like, Lord, it's not really what I meant. I think you misunderstood what I was complaining about. Are you really going to raise up a nation that's more wicked than us to judge us? Lord, you're really going to, like, how, how, could you do, how could you do this? This is a brutal nation. You just said it. It's a brutal nation. They're going to come and wipe us out? Lord, how can you do that? And the Lord says to Habakkuk, 
The Lord answered me, write this, the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He goes on then to describe the judgment that will come on Babylon. Habakkuk says, or the Lord says to Habakkuk, I, the righteous judge, will do right in the end. And it's going to seem slow. It may seem slow, but you need to wait. That's the call for the people of God to wait upon the Lord of justice to right all wrongs. To wait upon the Lord of justice to right all wrongs. Remember in our series on the book of Revelation, you remember what the chief enemy of God's people in the book of Revelation is? Babylon. These things make sense of why, the, why John uses Babylon as the, the key figure of those opposed to God's people because of what God's people endured from Babylon. Babylon is the type of all the nations who are opposed to God, the wicked empires of the world who do evil. And remember what we said in that, and, and by the way, remember, right? We're in Babylon now. It's where we are. It's where we live. It's where everyone lives, right? And remember what we said about the book of Revelation. The whole point was, don't side with Babylon. Wait. Just wait. Cling to Jesus. You are the people of the Lamb. You are the people of Jesus. You cling to Jesus. Babylon will fall. It's falling. Judgment will come against Babylon. You need to cling to Jesus and wait for Babylon. And the faithful of God's people cry out for God to execute that judgment upon Babylon. There was a similar cry actually to this cry in Psalms. There was a similar place in the book of Revelation that we looked at. Sorry, my throat is really dry today, so that's why I've got like two things here. And... Revelation chapter 6, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long will you wait, Lord, to judge and avenge our blood? There were a few things that I said there in that sermon that I want to say here because I think this is really important for us. The first thing is, part of why this is so unsettling for us is because we as a culture are uncomfortable with judgment. We're very uncomfortable as a culture with judgment. And one reason for that is our relative lack of suffering. Our relative lack of suffering is a very real reason for that. In comparison to what people have endured throughout all of time in other parts of the world, even today and throughout all of time, it's very difficult for us to understand what those experiences are like. Another is our underestimation of the evil in the world. Now, I think where we are grappling as a culture over the last few years is that we are seeing more and more our underestimating of the evil in the world was a huge miscalculation. And we don't know what to do with it. 
which is why we're so unsettled about everything. Because we were taught for so long a cultural narrative that people are generally pretty good, and now we're like, okay, that's not true. We see a lot of injustice and evil, but also we have always said, just don't judge anyone. Now we don't know what to do. Now we're just stuck in this mindset of, what do we do? So, so we'll, we'll just cancel everyone, right? We just want to, rather than experience any sort of uh, consequence, we'll just avoid all things, right? By canceling them and pretending they don't exist, which is maybe more judgment than accountability, right? But we're very uncomfortable with it and we don't know what to do with it. We should not judge the prayerful cry for justice from the oppressed from a place of relative ease and comfort. We should be very careful to judge the prayer for a cry for justice from the oppressed from a place of relative ease and comfort. Remember, we said we cannot sanitize our worship. It needs to be raw and honest. And if you are in a place of raw, honest oppression and suffering, your prayers should look like you're in a place of raw, honest suffering and oppression. So we should not be surprised by that. We also need to know that both here in Revelation and in our psalm, this cry is an, uh, what we call an imprecatory psalm. It's a, a cry for judgment. right? It's a, it's a petition to God to judge. There's really only 18 psalms out of the 150 that are considered imprecatory. So it's a pretty small amount, right? 150 psalms, 18 imprecatory psalms. And even those are varied in their degree of being imprecatory. So it's not a frequent part of God's worship. But imprecatory psalms, it's really important that you know this, are not cries for raw vengeance to be given out by God's people. No, they are cries for divine justice in the face of evil. It is a cry of lament from a place of pain for the God of justice to come and right all wrongs. Let me be abundantly clear. The church in this prayer and the people of God in Psalm 137 are never instructed to execute that judgment. What God allows us to pray and what God instructs us to do are different things. Those are different. And what God allows us to communicate to Him, even if it's in the inspired Word of God, does not give license for us to break His law in other places and to execute that judgment. Right? Those are different. So often, people look at the Scriptures and judge the Scriptures and say, you worship a moral monster. Look at what, look, look. Happy are those who dash the bait. What? Whoa, 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 wait. This is not a command from God. It's not at all a command from God. We have to understand it in its proper context. If you remove the context of it, it is deeply troubling. Michael Gorman, in his commentary, I I quoted this in our Revelation series, and his commentary on Revelation says, according to Revelation and the biblical witness generally, the judgment of the world, 
like salvation, is the responsibility and privilege of God and the Lamb alone. It is one of their reserved powers, so to speak. During this life, it is not the mission of humans, whether inside or outside the church. The role of human beings in history, at least those who are part of the people of God, is to announce this judgment prophetically, but not in any sense to execute it. This is so incredibly important. The saints here are crying out to God not to make them instruments of executing justice, but simply calling Him to right all wrongs. Simply calling Him to execute judgment. And, and let's contrast this with what the people of God in this very time are actually called to do. Well, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, this is to the exiles in Babylon. The ones who are crying out, God, would you bring this judgment? What does God tell them to do? He says, thus says the Lord of the hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the shalom of the city. The city that has caused us so much harm, we're to seek their good. They're called to work for the good of their neighbor and wait for the divine justice of God. Which means they're suffering. Which is exactly what Revelation teaches us. Right? Exactly what we saw in the book of Revelation is you can lament honestly about suffering while you work for the good of your neighbor and wait for Jesus to come and right all wrongs. So, we cannot use an imprecatory psalm to somehow say that God condones violence against our enemies, nor to say that God is morally deficient. We must hold the tension of our suffering in an evil world, waiting on divine justice, righting all wrongs, and loving our neighbor. And loving not just our neighbor, our enemy, as Jesus calls us to do. And we must see the inbreaking of divine judgment as a call for us to repent. Right? The whole book of Revelation is written to the church. The coming judgment is written to wake us up to not join Babylon, but to be part of Jesus' people. Babylon has fallen, repent, and side with Jesus and not Babylon. It's really interesting, right? This text is actually alluded to by Jesus. Our, our Psalm 137 text is alluded to by Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, and when he drew near, this is Jesus, he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The visitation meaning the coming of Jesus. It's really interesting here, right? Jesus alluding to this passage. The people of God are in Babylon weeping about not being in Jerusalem. Jesus is weeping seeing Jerusalem look like Babylon in rejecting God and pronouncing the judgment that the people of God in Psalms is calling for on Babylon upon them. Announcing that same judgment. The arc of the judgment here is that the people of God are judged for their disobedience and God brings Babylon in to judge them. Then God judges Babylon Babylon gets wiped out, right? right? There is no Babylonian nation today, right? They get wiped out. They get judged. God uses the Romans then to judge Israel in Jerusalem. And God uses, or then God judges Rome slash Babylon slash all empires in Revelation. But do you see here, before seeing judgment out there, we must reckon with God in here. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because He longs for them to repent and come near to God. Repentance and weeping is what should follow warnings of divine judgment. When we read Psalms like this, it's really hard these are the types of psalms that make me uncomfortable to where I tell jokes because that's what I do to disarm discomfort. But actually, when we read this, what we should do is weep and repent. Divine judgment is no joking matter. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said in the idea of teaching on eternal judgment in hell, I would rather sit and weep than stand and proclaim. This divine judgment in the face of evil and suffering, and even in the face of evil and suffering that we personally have experienced, should cause us to repent, to examine ourselves before God, and to weep. Which is why the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm points to Jesus. Christopher Wright, again to quote him, says this, In Christ, therefore, and supremely, of course, at the cross, God entered into the reality of the suffering of the world, but not only as an act of empathy or sympathy, but redemptively, taking upon Himself the whole burden of sin and evil, human and satanic, that underlies that suffering. At the cross, God bore in Himself in the person of His Son the reality of God's own judgment against sin. The hope for us in this psalm, which talks about the reality of divine judgment and this cycle of judgment that seems maybe confusing, God judges Israel with Babylon, then God judges Babylon, then Jesus comes and pronounces that same judgment that Israel 
was announcing on Babylon upon Israel. Like, the point is, everyone faces judgment. And so the only hope to escape judgment is if God Himself will step in. If God Himself will step into our world, not just to understand our suffering and to know what it means to cry out for mercy and justice, but also to step into our place. To bear the sin that we have done. To bear our guilt upon the cross. To die in our place. To suffer judgment so that we can experience blessing. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, not trusting in Jesus and Him alone, I need to warn you that you're in Babylon and Babylon is falling. Judgment is coming. And you need a Savior. You need someone who will step in and actually bear your guilt. And Jesus is that Savior. And He died on a cross and then rose from the dead to conquer death and sin and Satan. So come to Him and cling to Jesus. Now what if we're in a space where we know those things? We know the reality of waiting for Jesus. We know the reality of Suffering and loving our neighbor. And yet what's so hard is we ourselves feel like we're suffering in ways we don't know how to process. What if we're still in that space of lament? Well, it's not just that we can be honest in our lament while we wait for Jesus to make all things new. We can also weep in our worship. In the depths of suffering, we can, we can, along with the psalmist, say, how can we sing songs of joy for the temple of God? You know, there's this old school uh, CCM worship song, How Can I Keep From Singing? This song is maybe, this psalm is maybe, how can we possibly sing again? Our suffering is so intense our emotional response is so raw, the only thing we can do is hang up our instruments. How can you ask us to sing ever again? How can we sing to God in the midst of this difficulty? And I say this not lightly because I, I know where many of you are personally. Many of you are in places in which you are saying, I don't know how to sing. There's suffering that is great. There is pain that is real. There is difficulty and circumstances that I don't understand. Things that are unsettling in the world and in my life and in the lives of those I love. Lord, it, has, it makes no sense what you're doing. If that's the place you're in, and the place I find myself in often over the last few years, then what do we do? What do we actually do? 
Well, if we can't sing, we weep. That's what we do. Our tears now are stored up as a deferred hope. A recognition of the coming age and our longing for Jesus to come and wipe them away. Revelation 21 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him. Remember, the, the, the Israelites are saying, If we forget Jerusalem, let us forget how to sing. This revelation is bringing this picture fully back. Jerusalem is the place of the temple. Zion is the place of the temple. The place in which God dwells with His people. Let us not forget that that place is here among us partially because God dwells with us and in us by His Spirit, but it's not yet fully here. It is coming. It is coming. When Jesus returns and writes all wrongs. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Notice what he says here. He does not say He will come and give gold stars to all who are happy and joyful in their worship. He will not come and and lay out the Bible reading chart and make sure you checked every box. He's not going to come and say, come, show me all the things you did for the poor among you. Show me all the good works that you have done. He comes and says, I will wipe away all of your tears. All of your tears. Meaning the thing that we have to offer to God in many seasons is tears. That's it. That's all we have to offer. And sometimes we're in that place. And if we come to that place and we sanitize it, we clean it up, we're not raw and honest before the Lord and each other, we'll come away with the taste of sanitizer. We'll come away with something that is, maybe it looks good, but man, when you taste it, it tastes bad. We've got to come and enter in deeply. I don't know what God will do there. The, the people writing this psalm, maybe some of them made it back to Jerusalem to see the temple. Likely not. The people of God sang about it later. I don't know what God will do if we enter into that space, individually, corporately. I, I don't know what He's going to do in your life. I cannot promise you that. All I can promise you is one day he will wipe every tear. That day is coming. It is sure. And I can promise you that if you enter in honestly, he will meet you there. He has promised to meet us there. He might meet us with silence. And then we cry out, Lord, where are you? Why are you silent? How long? And he might meet us with more silence. And that's why we have to cling to the hope that one day He will right all wrongs and wipe away every tear. 
And when we can't sing, we weep because our weeping is accepted as worship. Because the God of the universe loves you. So we're going to end now, and I'm going to pray for us, but what what we're going to do is a little different than normal where we immediately get and sing in response. So we're just going to play for a little bit and then then move us into a new song. Um, and, And I want you to just sit for a minute and actually process and think through. And, and my hope is with our daily devotional that we send out this week and, and, and really dig into that, we're going to send out some instructions about how to lament well and even write our own laments and think through these things. But, but I don't want us to miss a moment where we enter into a sacred space in the Scriptures, a very unlikely space. When I first read this text, certainly I, this is not where I thought we would go. <laughs> But the Lord did what he did. And so we're here. And so I don't want us to miss a sacred space in which we say, okay, I'll get there. You're you're tugging on things I don't want to tug on because I don't really want to cry in front of people. Well, we've kind of got that out of the way because I do that all the time, it seems like. (laughs) Here, at least. (laughs) In this spot right here, I feel like I I do that frequently. So, So let's get that out of the way. But I I don't want us to miss a moment in which we say, we'll get to it later. We'll go, like, let's move on, because this is uncomfortable. Well, a text like this is already uncomfortable. Let's just stay in it, okay? And actually dig in. What is the thing I am feeling that the Lord needs me to say to Him? Where does God want to meet me right now? So I just want you to sit, process that with the Lord. And then eventually, Serena will start singing. And and as you're ready, you can stand and sing. And if you can't, if you're in a place where it's like, I can't can't pick it up, hung my guitar up, which I did before I started, because I can't play. (laughs) Not because of, of anything else, but then stay there. It's okay. You don't have to stand and sing. You can stay. Because your weeping is worship to God. So let me pray. Father, we are here in this place and we are longing for you to show up. Lord, I believe you are creating some sacred space here by your Spirit to do something. We're in spaces as a church and individually of difficulty and suffering and challenge and uncertainty and not knowing what you're doing. In spirit, we want you to do what you want to do in this place. So would you help us get our discomfort and sanitizing efforts out of the way that we would meet with you in reality? And Jesus, would you do something powerful, Meaningful, beautiful. Jesus, would you show up? We long for you to come and right all wrongs and wipe every tear. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.